preferred him to you. Well, that's how it is. And you needn't say I didn't warn you. Don't pay any attention to him, Trigger. He's not really a busybody. He used to be kind of crazy about me. And he's just a little bit jealous. You're listening to episode 92 of Sassmouth James podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. The story of Temple Drake remained in the vault for 40 years because the story about the rape and kidnap of a Southern Belle was deemed too shocking for American audiences. Yet the story is much bigger than what happens to Temple in the corn crib. Directed by Stephen Roberts, with a screenplay by Oliver H.P. Garrett based on William Faulkner's novel Sanctuary, the Paramount production composes a woman's moral education. Temple Drake navigates a social order of double standards and impossible expectations for women. In the middle of the drama, Temple faces the grim reality of what it means to be a woman living in a man's world. And by the end, Temple chooses to side with the truth rather than seek protection behind traditional ideas about women's honor. As an actress, Miriam Hopkins knew what she wanted. She never put her faith in the studio system to do right by her career the way other women had. She stood up to men and fought for good scripts. In Paramount, she starred in pictures where she exhibited a range of character types available for pre-code heroines. Whether she played a spoiled rich girl, a saucy thief, a sex worker, or a society dame, Miriam had a combined lust and ambition on the big screen that shone in her eyes as bright as aquamarine gemstones. Miriam didn't know then that she would never have it as good again as the four years she spent under contract with Paramount. When it seemed as though the studio was not taking care with her career and they were just casting her in middling pictures, Miriam took the advice she received from Paramount star Nancy Carroll. The story was the most important thing Nancy told her. Fight for good scripts. A bad script could not be saved by a good director or the best actors. Miriam kept that advice throughout her career. As a fledgling writer, Miriam gravitated towards the company of other writers. The script was the thing. In 1932, Paramount cast Miriam in the adaptation of Val Luton's novel, No Bet of Her Own. The studio had Clark Gable on loan out. Miriam didn't like the script and rejected the assignment. The studio ordered a revision, but in the end it only built up Gable's role, and on top of that they gave him top billing. Miriam refused to budge. She was now totally convinced it was a stinker. Why should she play second fiddle to an outsider, a man, from another studio? Columnists accused her of costing the studio dearly by holding up production while she went back to New York City. No one in the press could understand why Miriam was reluctant to do a picture with Clark Gable when other women in Hollywood would swim with sharks for the opportunity. After Miriam returned to Paramount, she marched into the office of the new head of production, Manny Cohen. They hadn't met. 
she preferred when B.P. Schulberg was head of production because she felt you could go into his office and talk about a script. Miriam stood in front of the desk of the new head of production and snapped, well, at least you might stand up and be a gentleman. Manny looked around and replied that he was. Miriam apologized. Manny Cohen was tiny. He stood at four foot eleven. They both sat down. Miriam said she didn't want to do no man of her own, as the script was now called. The script was no good, and she couldn't see herself playing the role. To her surprise, Manny consented and took her off the picture. He had something else for her instead. Paramount had just acquired the rights to Faulkner's novel, Sanctuary. They paid $6,000 for it. Miriam leapt on the offer. The story of Temple Drake, as it later became known, remained one of her favorite pictures. On more than one occasion, she declared that it was the best picture she had ever done. The picture wastes no time presenting characters who disapprove of the small-town coquette Temple Drake. Inside a roadside one-arm joint, Temple's date for the evening sums up the male point of view. He mimics her objections. Stop it. Don't touch me. You don't know what you're doing. He grouses just when I was going good. In another scene, graffiti on the men's room gives the male point of view as well. Scrawled next to the sink in the john is a tawdry little rhyme. Temple Drake is a fake. She wants to eat and have her cake. Um, like who doesn't? Later, a drunk college boy accuses her of firing a man up and then putting him out. The double standard for Temple and other debutantes still exists. If she wants to be a social success, she needs to have a lot of beau. Temple lives in a society where it was a triumph to have men compete for her favor. The more men who beg for a dance or date, the better. And then when she's an old woman, Temple could join in the tradition of old women who sit on the porch of an evening and brag about the number of beaux she had in the past. Society gave Temple the idea that it was her responsibility to control men, that she held the power on a date, that she had to put the brakes on when it came to sex. If anything happens, it's because she didn't handle him the right way and it would be her fault. With a smile, she could avoid getting in trouble for sneaking in at four in the morning, or she could turn a man down with a smile to spare his feelings and still keep him on a leash. Women in town didn't think any better of Temple Drake. The laundress, who looks like Libby Taylor, although isn't listed in the credits, remarks over a broken strap on one of Temple's lace teddies that if Temple's grandfather did her laundry, he'd know more about her. Elizabeth Patterson, as Aunt Jenny, tells her um, nephew, William Gargan, Steve Benbow, there's something evil in Temple that will send her to the gutter. Miss Ruby in the Roadhouse Speakeasy, criticizes Temple for being a tease who winds men up and then spends their money. Everyone disapproves of Temple, except for her grandfather, the judge, and William Gargan, the defense attorney. One night during a party, Temple runs off with a drunken college boy, Teddy Gowan, played by William Collier. 
after he crashes the car into a tree, the mood of the picture shifts from society kids on a spree, like the type Miriam played in her first picture for Paramount, Fast and Loose. Out of nowhere, a gangster appears and orders them up to the house, a ramshackle old home, a place that looks haunted by the living rather than the dead. Hesitant, Temple waits outside in the dark until claps of thunder, lightning, and a downpour force her inside. She's dressed in a slinky, bias-cut silk gown and wrapper. Her matching silk pumps are coated in mud. She's vulnerable and ill-equipped to ride out a storm. Through the window, she sees a group of men passing a jug of homemade liquor. It's Night of the Living Dead, all right, compared to the swanky party they had just left. The bootlegger's den looks like a gang rape waiting to happen, and they're led by Gun Crazy Trigger, played by Jack LaRue. Temple bypasses the men around the back to the kitchen door. Ruby, played by Florence Eldridge, wears a permanent sneer and a man's sweater. The oversized cardigan isn't a matter of devotion. It's more of a case that there's no other clothing around in the place. I shiver looking at Temple drenched in flimsy evening clothes next to Ruby in a thick sweater. The last time we see Temple, as she had always been, is when she crouches down to talk to Ruby's baby who sits in the wood box. The infant is smeared with soot on his face. But Temple sweet-talks him, like she does to all men, saying she'll protect him. Then she learns why the baby is in the wood box. So the rats don't get it, says his charming mama. Ruby's lack of empathy for Temple is nearly as shocking as what happens in the barn. Grown bitter at being a drudge and knocked around by the father of her child, Ruby is hard on Temple. Ruby gives out to her for being a tease and does nothing to make her feel safe. She pens Temple in the barn like an animal. After Ruby's comment about her baby in the wood box to keep the rats away, I can't get over how sadistic she is to make Temple lay on a pile of food. In a dilapidated old barn, with the light streaming between the wooden slats, poor Temple sleeps on a rat's nest in a skimpy silk gown. It's a wonder she wasn't chewed to bits. Out in the woods, her name and her grandfather's position have no authority. It doesn't protect her from being penned like an animal and then being mauled by another one. When Trigger appears, after the scene dissolve from a rooster's legs to his legs sneaking around in Cuban heels, he looms over Temple with a cigarette screwed in his face like a swizzle stick and a poison cocktail. Jack LaRue looks like a dead-eyed shark. He's positively loathsome as Trigger. By all accounts, he was a very nice man in real life. In the course of one awful night and the morning after, Temple is completely shattered. What was her crime? That she trusted a date who, instead of being an escort, got blind drunk and smashed the car and left her to be terrorized and attacked? That she had been a flirt? After the rape, Temple is catatonic. 
Trigger kidnaps her to a brothel and continues the abuse. On top of the prolonged physical trauma, Temple also realizes that everything she thought she knew is meaningless. It's, it's a lie. She has no power, nor can she count on sympathy from other women. Miss Reba, when they arrive in the, in the brothel, swigs from a mug of beer and turns a blind eye to an obvious society dame who says she doesn't want to stay installed in her brothel. Temple finally sees the world as it really is outside of her grandfather's mansion. She encounters women who are completely dependent on unreliable men, like Miss Ruby, grown pinched and mean from poverty and abuse. Miss Reba is on the other side of the coin. She profits from men's appetites. Women to Miss Reba are either ground down into husks or grown into predators like herself who exploit girls for profit. As Minnie, Louise Beavers is the only woman to show Temple any kindness when, with quick thinking, she offers an excuse to Miss Reba when she comes to investigate the sound of gunfire. Steve Benbow's visit to Miss Reba's plays out in an unexpected way. Viewers expect a showdown between a man of the law and a man outside the law. But Temple surprises both men. In a flash, she sees Trigger reach for his gun and takes action. She does the talking. Temple has spent many years watching men and learning how to read them so she can anticipate their thoughts. She uses their experience to turn the tables and avert the violence that bubbles underneath the surface of the scene. Temple takes the lawyer off guard by claiming she's there by choice. She doesn't need or want to be saved. He's not allowed to be her knight in shining armor. Steve Benbow is dumbstruck and unaware how close he came to being sent to the morgue. The gangster, Jack LaRue's trigger, is at least 10 steps behind Temple. He's so self-absorbed that he's blindsided by the ego boost Temple gives him when she declares that she prefers him to the fancy lawyer. She leans over Trigger, kisses him, takes a cigarette, and then takes a drag from it. Temple stands there in, the, in front of the man, a man from her class, dressed in cheap lingerie, and seems regal when she's in league with the bootlegger. Benbo slinks away, defeated. Trigger believes her act. The camera stays on him as Trigger delivers a monologue about how impressed he was that she stuck up for him in front of a swell, one of her own. The way he marvels at what she did shows the audience how much Trigger needs to feel like a big man, especially around important men. He's somehow touched that Temple has come across. Meanwhile, off-camera, Temple is busy. When the camera pulls back to show what she's been doing, we see she's been dressing with her back to Trigger. Miriam has this great bit of business where she looks in the mirror and takes time adjusting her hat. She tucks her hair in gently. Miriam shows the audience a resolute woman. She's resolved to leave, but she takes that moment to fix her hat just so. 
It calls to mind other great scenes in woman's pictures where women make micro adjustments to their hat in front of a mirror to let us know they've made up their minds. I'm thinking of Olivia de Havilland during In This Our Life, or Meg Clark in Waterloo Bridge, or Aileen McMahon in The Gold Diggers of 1933. In this scene, Miriam Hopkins demonstrates how women are always performing for men, telling them what they need to hear, only this time she isn't playing from the familiar tales about mint juleps and necking in a roadster or stopping a man at the front door when he brings you home at four in the morning. In Miss Reba's place, Temple is acting for her life and saying what she must to save herself. Temple doesn't cry, she doesn't run, and she doesn't beg. She's made up her mind, she stands her ground. She feels she's earned her freedom by giving Trigger a total alibi. Thus concludes their business. She's leaving. Trigger reacts as one expects when he is now demoted from being a big man to being a mug. Trigger knocks her down. But as fate would have it, she lands on his pistol and shoots him dead. Good riddance. In the final courtroom scene, when the roadhouse bootlegger is on trial for murder, Benbo puts Temple on the stand. Miriam here as Temple could have played it like a fluttery southern belle, but she doesn't. She plays it cold, stone, serious. Understated. Minimal emotion. Her sentences are brutally short, anywhere from two to four words. She does not embellish her testimony with coquette mannerisms. She doesn't elaborate with emotion or detail. She pairs everything down to the bare bones of what happened that night in the woods. She does not spare the truth, even to protect her reputation. Temple could have hidden behind the society that protects a woman's honor and sends a man, a poor man, to the gallows. But she doesn't. The strain of admitting the horror of that night, of the attack, and that she stayed in the brothel and then killed Trigger knocks her cold. She passes out from the witness stand. A man like Trigger didn't defeat Temple, rob her of her dignity in the corn crib, and the men in court didn't defeat her either. She clung to the truth. In an interview for Photoplay magazine before production began on Temple Drake, the reporter, May Allison Quirk, admits that she was so repulsed by Faulkner's novel that she couldn't finish reading it. Miriam replied, Faulkner is a fine writer, and as such, realism in all forms appeal to him. There are conditions of life today and individuals who do not fit into our civilization, but are, but are part of the world we live in. We should know about them. The interviewer countered, but Miriam, sewage makes just as deep a cut in the ground as pure water, Aren't we better off not knowing certain things which must, must leave their imprint upon us? Miriam giggled. Then she replied, you've been talking to my mother. Miriam did not perceive a risk in playing the lead role in a meaty drama, even if her mother and other women thought the novel was tawdry. But for the actor cast as Popeye, 
renamed Trigger for the screenplay, the role did carry a potential risk. Originally, Paramount cast George Raft to play Trigger. It always surprises me when film critics refer to George Raft as not too bright, as they often do in terms of how Humphrey Bogart benefited by the scripts Raft turned down. On the contrary, Raft was highly protective of his screen image. George Raft was a huge star for decades, precisely because he did not trust the studio to do right by his career. He viewed Trigger as professional suicide. In Faulkner's novel, Popeye's description is about as far removed from a swoon merchant as you can get. He's chinless. He's syphilitic, which had a castrating effect. George Raft made a living by being seductive to women. Who could blame him for recoiling at the role? When the producer, Ben Glazer, gave Raft the nod to play Trigger, Raft refused. He went directly to Adolf Zukor, studio head, and proposed a deal. He would play Trigger if Zukor deposited $2 million in his bank account as an insurance policy. Raff stood his ground and took suspension. He went without pay. Then he appealed to the press. He gave interviews to calmness where he pled his case. As far as I could tell, he said, I ate before I went into pictures. And if this is the end of his, my career, so be it. He planned to go back to the stage. He told one reporter, I've been lucky enough to get a break on the screen. People have been good to me. They've liked me. If I had done what Paramount ordered me to do and played the part of Popeye, they wouldn't have liked me anymore. That's the way I got it figured out. The part was plain suicide for me. Jack LaRue jumped at the chance to play Trigger. In the August 1933 edition of Photoplay, LaRue was willing to bet that all the roles of all the roles he had, this would be a big break. He compared Trigger with popular rogues on the screen, the type of rough trade characters George Raft and Clark Gable played. LaRue theorized that women liked to be smacked around by men. Women found it exciting to be manhandled. He followed this reasoning with a half a dozen examples of women he knew who liked being snip-smacked around by dominant men. LaRue also cited Raft and Scarface and Gable in A Free Soul. But LaRue forgot that the audiences see Anne Dvorak and Norma Shearer receive a lot of pleasure from the men in the bargain. They're not in the same league as the rapist Trigger. After the picture was released, publicists tried to salvage LaRue's career after the stigma of playing one of the most repellent characters on the screen. In the November 1933 issue of Photoplay, an article wondered about the trigger jinx. A few pages later in the magazine, Jack LaRue is posed before the camera in an apron cooking spaghetti with a recipe attached anything to separate the actor from the character. At least the recipe didn't call for fresh corn. Jean Negulesco had worked on only one other picture for Paramount when he was assigned to Temple Drake. Jean was assigned to the picture as the technical advisor for the rape scene. Like many men, Negulesco was entirely smitten with Miriam Hopkins. 
He had drawn storyboards for the scene, mapping out each shot in black ink on white paper. His sketches drew from German Expressionism, relying on sharp contrast between light and shadow. On the set, Jean supervised the shoot. Tensions were high. Miriam, ever the vixen, attempted to lighten the mood. She asked Jean a, a series of questions before the cameras rolled. Jean, are my legs open at the right angle? Should my dress be up higher? Do I scream? And are my eyes open to the horror of what I see? Or do I close my eyes and let things happen? Jean, do I enjoy it? Negulesco became flustered and blushed as everyone on set burst into laughter. Miriam took pity on Jean, took him in her arms and kissed him fiercely on the mouth. Everyone applauded. The tension disappeared. They could shoot the scene in a way to mollify the censors. In another bid to lighten the mood on the set and play a prank with the suits in the front office, Miriam conspired with the director, Stephen Roberts. They knew that Manny Cohen viewed the Daily Rushes. They included a little something to give the head of production a shock. Roberts added a shot where Jack LaRue picks up a corn cob and walks towards the camera with a smile on his face. It was a sly nod to the grotesque bit William Faulkner had in Sanctuary. Cohen went ballistic when he saw the scene the following morning, and somehow news leaked all the way to the Hayes Code office. Production Code officials sent a barrage of warnings. From early in 1933, Will Hayes tried to double down on the production code with a new initiative which he dubbed a reaffirmation of objectives. Hayes argued that a strict adherence to the code would save the film industry from the brink of economic collapse. In that way, studios could build goodwill with the public who believed the studios sold filth and immorality. Where once the Hayes Office Studio Relations Committee sent out memos with language such as, it is advisable, and we suggest, the language became more censorious in tone, in 1933. Their letters addressed to studio heads and producers now sent replies in terms of what was inadmissible or unacceptable. They argued that a strict interpretation of the code was the only way to salvage poor box office. Joseph Breen saw an initial uh, preview of Temple Drake and issued a list of changes which had to be made. Cohen ignored Breen's comments and took the film to the censor board in New York, where it was rejected. Other state boards fell into line behind the New York censors. In the end, claps of thunder were added in the scenes in the bootlegger den to muffle some of the objectionable dialogue. While the production code scolds felt Temple Drake was offensive, A conservative reviewer in Kansas felt the picture could be shown in a Sunday school because it punished moral offenses rather than glorify them as other films had. Nationwide reviews were mixed, but Temple Drake's reputation has only increased over time. Over the years, Miriam Hopkins had referred to Temple Drake as the best thing she'd ever done. It was pulled by the production code officials after its first run in 1933 
and was suppressed until it was restored by the Museum of Modern Art and screened in July 1972. John Coble, who collected a series of star interviews in a marvelous collection called People Will Talk, wrote about seeing Miriam at the screening in MoMA for Temple Drake. The audience, he noted, was full of people eager to show that they were too sophisticated for the picture. They laughed at the film in odd places. This is sadly an all-too-familiar phenomenon, as anyone who has been to public screenings of classic films know. The hipster audience often laughs at scenes that are emotionally fraught and full of serious melodrama. Miriam was shaken during the screening, and afterwards she became apologetic at the champagne reception. She was flustered. It was an old film, she explained. They couldn't do it the way they wanted because of the censors. Imagine that a crowd guffawed at the best thing you'd ever done. Miriam Hopkins died not long after the revival of Temple Drake, and I've wondered if she died of a broken heart. Miriam once told an interviewer that Temple Drake, now there was a thing. Just give me a nice, unstandardized or wet wretch like Temple three times a year. Give me the complex ladies and I'll interpret the daylights out of them. When Miriam Hopkins was six years old, she developed a nasty case of rheumatic fever. The doctors told her parents that the girl might be plagued with heart problems for the rest of her life once the disease weakened her system. Miriam's father, Homer, could not find work in Georgia, so he took a job in Dallas. Her mother, Ellen, refused to leave with her daughters, Ruby and Miriam. Ellen considered Homer dead and buried once he moved to Texas, and she made sure that her husband never spoke to his daughters again. In 1917, Ellen moved with the girls to New York City. Miriam was enrolled at a local high school but fell ill and needed an appendectomy. After she returned to school, she passed out one day in the stairwell. Ellen appealed to the school principal to allow Miriam to take the elevator. Ellen told the man where to get off and withdrew Miriam from the roster once he refused. Miriam finished her last year of high school in a Vermont prep school. Although she rankled at the jibes about her southern accent, Miriam did have a chance to act on stage in school productions. When she left, she dreamt of being a dancer or a writer. Back in New York City, Miriam had an uncle, Dixie Hines, who was a popular press agent. Once, when he complained about clients who failed to pay his fees, Miriam suggested that he could ask them to pay off his fee in kind. Miriam and her sister Ruby could benefit from lessons in dancing and acting, and a dress designer outfitted the sisters in bespoke ensembles. Miriam studied in a dancing school hired to perform for a banquet hosted by the Bankers Club. The girls were costumed for the routine in to look like Armenian refugees for some reason, in torn clothing with streaks of dirt across their faces. Before the cur- curtain, a man stood backstage and noticed that everybody wore the gag makeup except for Miriam. He stepped into the chorus line and dabbed smudges onto her face. That man was Herbert Hoover, 
which allowed Miriam to boast that she once had her makeup done by a man who would become president of the United States. Uncle Dixie may have agreed to let his nieces take lessons, but he put the word out that under no circumstances should anyone hire them. The lessons might add something extra for the girls, like a Broadway finishing school, but true Southern Belle should not seek to make a living on the stage. Uncle Dixie was kept in the dark while Miriam and Ruby took jobs in vaudeville. Miriam joined auditions each time a new show or play had a casting call. At one of her uncle's parties, Miriam eavesdropped on two men who were talking about a new show at the Music Box, the theater owned by Irving Berlin. Miriam wore her best clothes to the theater on the day of the audition and bluffed her way past security, stating that she was expected by Hassard Short, the casting director for the show. She told the man on stage the same thing. He turned out to be Hassard Short who called her out on her bold-faced lie, saying he had never met her before, let alone invited her to audition. But Hazard Short smiled and was visibly charmed. Miriam suggested he should see what she could do since she was already there. Miriam was cast as one of the eight little notes in the Music Box Review for $40 a week. Miriam and the seven other Corrines wore costumes of musical notes and danced out of a box. Miriam's mother, Ellen, was dead set against the idea of her daughter appearing on stage, but she quickly changed her tune when the Music Box Review was the toast of Broadway. The show was a big hit and ran for a year. Hollywood luminaries such as Norma Talmadge and Lillian Gish were there for opening night in September 1921. During the smash run, F. Scott Fitzgerald was in the audience one night. He had his eye on Miriam every time she appeared on stage. After the show, he met her backstage in the Corrine dressing room and put his hand on her shoulder, inviting her to dinner. They commenced a passionate affair that only lasted for a few weeks once word reached Zelda. After the show closed, Miriam had signed on as a dancer for a company that planned a South American tour. But after she got her passport, she slipped on a path and injured her ankle. She was gutted at the time, but later Miriam learned that the company folded and left dancers stranded in Rio without pay and without a way home. She considered her wobbly ankle good luck and felt she owed her future success from being saved by near disaster. While she recuperated and was out of work, Miriam wrote a few short stories. Then she contacted Elizabeth Marbury, an influential literary agent. Marbury invited Miriam for lunch at her house in 13 Sutton Place. When Miriam arrived, she took one look at the place and told her hostess, someday I shall own this house. And she did. Miriam bought 13 Sutton Place 10 years later, after Marbury died of a heart attack. Miriam feared she would be typecast in musical comedies when she longed to perform in serious dramas. She wanted to try out for dramatic parts and avoided jobs as long as she could. May Tully, who was a vaudevillian and a playwright, cast Miriam in a sketch called Sister Wives. The sketch was a one-act drama. It was a success and played for six months in the vaudeville circuit. 
From that part, Miriam was launched on her first big role on Broadway as second lead in a play called Little Jesse James, which opened in August 1923. Miriam played a flapper and was paid a whopping $250 a week. She moved to the village and bought her first fur coat. One reviewer noted that in the show, Miriam was entirely delicious. The Chamberlain Brown Talent Agency came calling. They also represented Helen Hayes and Ruth Chatterton on this stage. Throughout 1924-1925, Miriam endured a series of flops and plays that only had a short run. In one of them, she was only cast because the male lead, Louis Calhoun, didn't want to carry a larger co-star up a flight of stairs. And since Miriam was slender as a tulip stalk, she won the role. In 1926, Miriam married Shakespearean actor Brandon Peters after a brief courtship. Their marriage also had a short run, like one of her plays during her early years on stage. For Miriam's 24th birthday, Brandon brought home a dozen roses. Miriam asked her out-of-work husband where they came from. His reply, the florist, went over like a rotten egg. The charge account at the florist was in Miriam's name. Miriam was steadfast that a man should pay his own bills. She told him to return the flowers, and that was about it. The marriage was dead. She refused to talk about Brandon for years, even after he died in the 1950s. Miriam's son, Michael, never even knew about his mother's starter marriage. He learned about it from newspaper obituaries. The end of her marriage came with good luck. Miriam received a huge career boost when she was chosen over 200 other actresses to play Sandra in An American Tragedy. Dreiser's play broke box office records, pulling in $30,000 a week. Miriam's notices were glowing. Miriam had not bothered to file for divorce from Brandon because much like Mae West, she found that having a husband in the background kept her from doing anything stupid and, and jumping into another marriage with one of her flings. But Miriam became serious about Austin Parker, who went by Billy. He was an aspiring writer who had a series of mildly successful plays on stage. After a quickie divorce from her first husband, Miriam married Billy on a lark in 1928. Their nuptials were not exactly legal, as Billy's divorce had not yet come through. Undeterred, they sailed for a European honeymoon. They returned in time for the Broadway season in the fall. Miriam and Billy rented a flat in Waverly Place, where they hosted a series of wild parties. It was there that Miriam first met Ernest Lubitsch, who was playing the piano in her living room. Miriam struck up friendships with Anita Luce, who had formerly sacked her in the role of Lorelei in the stage edition of Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Miriam also forged friendships with Dorothy Parker, Alexander Walcott, Sherwood Anderson, and other notable writers. In a theater in Rochester, New York, George Cukor directed a number of plays on a tight schedule. He cast Miriam as the lead in a play called Excess Baggage. Miriam struck up an affair with her co-star, Robert Montgomery. 
Austin Parker was an ideal husband for Miriam since he didn't seem capable of jealousy. Nor did Miriam seem to mind when her husband fooled around, as he did later, especially in Hollywood, with women like Thelma Todd and Billy Dove. Even after she divorced Billy, they were close friends until he died tragically in 1938. The part that finally proved to be a stepping stone for Miriam into pictures was a revival of Lysistrata, the Greek play about women who stage a sex strike until the men call off in a war. Miriam thought nothing of the part and initially refused to do it. It was too small. The producers built up the role and stole good lines from other players. Miriam agreed to the juicy role of playing a sex-starved vamp who cheats on the women's bargain. Miriam was an unqualified hit with critics and audiences. It led to an offer from Paramount to star in Fast and Loose in 1930. At first, Miriam rejected the contract, but then changed her mind when the East Coast studio in Astoria agreed to her shooting terms. The film must not interfere with her role on the stage playing Lysistrata, in Lysistrata. Miriam kept a taxing schedule that worked her to the absolute bone. Each day she woke at 6 and was ready to shoot in the Astoria studio by 9. Cameras rolled until 6, then she jumped in the car, fully made up and dressed to reach her curtain on Broadway each night at 8 o'clock. During a night swim scene for Fast and Loose, she developed an ear infection that refused to heal, probably because Miriam was burning the candle at both ends. For her trouble, Miriam made $700 a week on Broadway and $1,000 a week in the one-picture contract with Paramount. She furnished the flat on Waverly Place and bought another fur coat. While she filmed in the Astoria studio, Miriam was suddenly self-conscious and worried about how she looked in front of the camera. She sought advice from Paramount star Nancy Carroll. Nancy was about to receive an Oscar nomination for Best Actress for playing The Devil's Holiday. Miriam worried that her pale eyelashes and eyebrows wouldn't register on film. Nancy taught Miriam about makeup for the screen and also about lighting and camera angles. But more importantly, Nancy taught her to always hold out and fight for a good script. Miriam's confidence grew thanks to Nancy's mentorship. Fast and Loose received mixed reviews, but Miriam's notices were good. She signed another one-picture deal with the studio to appear, appear alongside Claudette Colbert and Maurice Chevalier in Lubitsch's The Smiling Lieutenant. She felt disadvantaged next to her co-stars because of their mastery of French. Miriam used a language coach on the set so she could match their rapid-paced delivery. Lubitsch favored Miriam on the set, much to the consternation of Claudette Colbert. Miriam's second husband, Billy, had abandoned writing for the stage. He contributed dialogue for Fast and Loose, then wrote the script for Dorothy Arzner's Honor Among Lovers, starring Claudette Colbert. Billy went out to Hollywood on a screenwriting contract. Based on glowing reviews from the press for Miriam's role in the Lubitsch picture, Paramount offered her a five-year contract at $1,500 a week. Miriam went to Hollywood, even though her heart remained on the Broadway stage. She believed the pictures were, quote, a sort of canned and secondhand emotion, 
unquote, compared with live theater. Miriam managed to replicate the sense of live theater for a pivotal scene in Ruben Mamoulian's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. She asked if they could do an eight-page uh, eight scene in one take. Miriam also asked if she could have an audience and gather the cast and crew around. She made suggestions for where the cameras should be placed and at what angle. By the end of the scene, where she had begged Frederick March to save her from the evil hide, Miriam was in a heap on the floor clutching March's shoes. Full of emotion, she brought that scene to life. Miriam made two outstanding pictures in 1933, Temple Drake and Design for Living, her last with Lubitsch. In 1934, she did her last picture for Paramount, She Loves Me Not. After that, she moved to Goldwyn's studio. Although she got on well with Goldwyn socially, she didn't altogether trust him professionally. About the most agreeable parts of her tenure with Goldwyn's studio were the chance to work with William Wyler and Joel McRae. Miriam's psychics were falling down on the job when they didn't see disaster written in the stars when Sam Goldwyn asked Jack Warner to share the remaining pictures on Miriam's contract. Jack Warner's dirty deals put an end to Miriam's A-list film career. First, he had his fingers crossed when he signed the contract to purchase Miriam's rights, rights to the stage play Jezebel, under Miriam's provision that she star in the film version. Warner had no intention of honoring the deal and gave the picture to Betty Davis. He did the same with Juarez, the other picture Miriam wanted. He sided with Betty when the two stars went to war during the Old Maid in 1939. Then Warner gave Miriam the runaround for more than a year on All This and Heaven Too. Although Warner signed a contract, they gave the lead to Miriam in All This in Heaven too. he never planned to follow through. When Miriam arrived in the studio to start work on All This in Heaven too, she was called into a meeting in the front office. Jack Warner used a bit of blackmail. He knew all about Miriam's affair with Carl Zuckmayer, a German playwright. Miriam had met, had met the married writer in New York and they had a casual affair, Zuckmayer was married, and so was Miriam, until her divorce to third husband Anatole Lidfak. While Miriam fulfilled her six-week residency in Reno for the divorce, Zuckmayer kept her company. Once she returned to Hollywood, expecting to begin work on All That in Heaven too, she got Zuckmayer hired on as a screenwriter with Warner's. In the meeting with Jack Warner, he told Miriam he was prepared to leak the news of her affair with Zuckmayer. Miriam lived in mortal dread of bad publicity, even if she didn't court the favor of columnists like other stars had. Instead of that picture, she was pressed into signing to do a role with Virginia City uh, with Errol Flynn. Miriam had always avoided playing the smaller role and second fiddle to any man on screen, and now here she was, playing a supporting role to a man. She felt as though she had no choice but to accept, what with the threat of blackmail and unpaid bills and a debt to the IRS looming large. Miriam returned to New York in the stage and only went back sporadically to Hollywood. 
in the 1960s when debt forced Miriam to sell her prized art collection and then her beloved townhouse on Sutton Place. She was asked about her reflections on the film colony, if she had fun back in the day. Miriam sat for a moment and then she said, there is no Hollywood anymore. It's just a post office and a phone no one ever answers. Miriam Hopkins' career proves that if you want to get to the top, you have to fight for it. The following books helped me to write the episode. Miriam Hopkins, The Life and Films of a Hollywood Rebel by Alan Ellenberger, published in 2018. People Will Talk by John Coble, published in 1986. Things I Did and Things I Think I Did, a Hollywood Memoir by Jean Negulesco, published in 1984. George Raft by Louis Yablonsky, published in 1974. Forbidden Hollywood, the pre-code era 1930 to 1934, when sin ruled the movies by Mark Vieira, published in 2019. Thanks for listening. Join me next time when I talk about Margaret Lockwood in The Lady Vanishes from 1938.